Hey there, folks. Guess Hi. What? Oh, not you. <laughs> oh. I thought you were talking to me. <laughs> you shut up for right now. Okay. I'm talking to the peeps listening. All right. The ones that were inside their ear canal right now. Mm. Basically, what we're wanting to warn you of right now is this thing called spoilers. And we are going to be doing that with any movie we mention or TV show. We could mention a TV show, too. We're going to ruin the end of Love Boat episode 32 oh, from season six. That's the best episode, too. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. aside from the love boat, we are also going to spoil anything else that we mentioned during the show. So do us a favor and uh, stop crying about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Sensen Control. Stand by. everybody welcome yes welcome to you all my name is tim and i am derek hey and boy do we have a doozy of an episode for you guys this time man oh man oh i'm gonna go way out on a limb and suggest that my first introduction to a lot of things probably for sure uh, ninjas and nudity <laughs> and really badly done superhero movies was because of canon. Yeah, canon films. And that's the subject today. Yes. Canon Films presents an outstanding lineup of films for 1986 and beyond. Major filmmakers, major stars, major motion pictures. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff. People have been talking about this stuff for for years, and um, there's a really good documentary about it, uh, about the company that people should watch. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, that's right. So check that out if you want to. Uh, it's really good. But we're going to talk about some of the movies that we kind of remember from our own childhood because Canon Films' heyday, if you can call it that, was basically <laughs> the heyday of our childhoods. You know, right, the, yeah. The, basically throughout the 80s. Yes. Every, I'd say about 85% of the terrible movies made in the 80s were made by Canon Films. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> so, too. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, man. <laughs> so let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. Canon Films, the company of the future. Founded in this uh, October 23rd, 1967. Mm, wow. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> It was a very good year. I think it was the summer of love. Oh, was it? Isn't that when that all that hippie shit started? I mean, you know, 60s, 70s, it all really blends together. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, anywho, um, guy named uh, Dennis Friedland and Chris Dewey basically started off uh, Canon Films mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And um, they uh, what, what did they do with their, their movies? Well, I'll tell you, Tim. So they took uh, Swedish softcore porn movies 
Yeah. And then they made English translations out of them and then sold them to, I guess, America and wherever would buy it and made a good living off of it. Yeah. And, and apparently more than a good living, they made a lot of money. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it was a good business for it and it worked out in the long run. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's oh. true. And the seventies were an interesting time for filmmaking anyway, right? All yeah. kinds of Absolutely. barriers being broken down. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, not, the, not that I've ever engaged is the best of my knowledge in any Swedish softcore porn, but yeah, I have yeah. actually. <laughs> really? I'll, wasn't yeah. I'll tell you later. Okay. I'll tell you in a minute. You finish your story. Okay. So where I was going was I was just wondering. Well, I'm sure you could actually enlighten us all on how detailed and in depth and vulgar was uh, Swedish softcore porn. Because I mean, does it meet the same standards as 2021 softcore porn as far as vul vulgarity and stuff? Or even if they make softcore porn these days i'm not even sure but also one of the things you have to realize is the 70s was when real porn was starting to become a little bit mainstream yes linda lovelace is back in the all-new hilarious follow-up to the biggest word of mouth movie ever deep throat part two it's everything you ever hoped for mm -hmm. and so you had things like debbie does yeah. dallas and Deep Throat, and uh, even Canon is responsible for the Happy Hooker trilogy. So I don't know. Just enlighten us on some softcore Swedish porn, Tim, <laughs> <laughs> if you will oblige. So I remember going to uh, it was called Major Video, mm. which it was a mom and pop store. I'm thinking. Yeah, right? it was, and and uh, and about um, a couple years later, it became Video Power Store, and I have ended up working at that place, the very same location, right? Oh. Oh, yeah, okay. And me and my buddy Randy there, were, we go in to rent some... Actually, they had Betamax, and he had a Betamax player. Ooh, clear picture there. So I get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and I would say this is probably around 1987, 88. And um, we went some really horrible zombie movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot back. I mean, it's worse now, but it was a lot back then. It might have been Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Oh. I, th I think it was. That was. Yeah, that was really bad. And and then the other movie we rented was uh, 2069, A Sex Odyssey. <laughs> a mission of survival turns into an orgy of interplanetary love. 2069, an erotic science fiction fantasy that makes Star Wars look like kid stuff. 2069. The Odyssey you'll dream about. It was kind of Swedish. Wow. And it was weird. I, yeah, I remember a scene. It was basically these sex-crazed or sex-starved female aliens come down and just want to have sex with all these guys, right? And was it was it more modern to the time you rented it? Or? No, it was. It looked old even oh. then. So it could have been. It, it very well could have been an early <laughs> Canon's film. Canon film. <laughs> But the one scene I remember in particular, this guy is in like a Saab, of course, which is a Swedish car. And uh, it's snowy <laughs> out and uh, they're on the top of a hill or something. And then the alien lady, who's just pretty much a blonde chick with big boobs. Uh, <laughs> well, the alien's trying to blend in with Sweden, is, so. Gets atop the guy <laughs> when he's driving the car. The car's parked on the top of the hill. But there, she starts, you know, riding them as in the car, and the emergency brake comes off. And the joke is, as the car's going down the hill, every time she bounces, it's like hitting the brake or something. So the car's like going backwards down the hill, like er, 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 in the snow, though, in the ice. 
That's the only thing I remember from that movie. Was it very soft quarry? Yes. Oh, okay. I mean, it was like you know, maybe a little bush shots, but no actual penetration or. Right. And I don't rem- I don't remember that if there was any schlongs in there. <laughs> the stick shift was perfectly in the right position to block everything. Genius <laughs> filmmaking there. Yeah. So that's kind of my memory of that. Wow. Wow. Well, basically, your story is confirming that out of the two of us, you have probably seen the earliest releases of the Canon Film Group. Is, the early is Canon, right? Yeah. This isn't <laughs> this isn't the Canon that we became familiar with as little children. Right. Right. And um, <laughs> yeah, because in in um, 1979, about what 12 years later, after these guys started their company that was bought out by these Israeli dudes right. who were cousins and uh, uh, this is a tough one for me because it's kind of Hebrewish, but <laughs> I think it's uh, Menachem Golan yeah. and Yoram Globus we have come to the mecca of cinema Hollywood in 1979 uh, actually uh, just coming to make movies where movies are done in American style We've been grown on American films, and we decided to try and make them ourselves. Golan and Globus. Right, and Golan was essentially, he was the uh, charismatic film connoisseur of sorts. Yep. He's the one with the dreams and the visions of, of making everything grandiose and the best thing ever. Right. And, and Globus, his cousin, was more of the money man. We love cinema, Menachem and myself and uh, we are going to deliver it and we proved in the last uh, four years that we delivered in the classic and here here's some interesting tidbits huh so uh menahem galan mm-hmm. he started off as a theater his career as as far as a storyteller in, in a theater in tel aviv he was in uh he did a lot of plays and stuff like that mm-hmm. so when the life of film beckons him he ends up going and learning his craft cutting his teeth if you will with one of the biggest people you can do that with he ends up becoming an understudy for roger corman oh interesting yeah so if you're gonna learn schlock learn from the best <laughs> right well i know the first batch of movies that they make uh, are in Israel, they're in they're in Hebrew and all that stuff because they, they do some kind of smutty stuff that was kind of like their conservative culture was kind of like yes we're into this but they're trying to pretend they're not <laughs> you know what I mean you know right. the highly religious culture of Israel. Gas pump girls, a motion picture delight. When our girls change over a gas station and turn it into a fun station with sounds that will get you dancing while your tank is getting filled. And these guys are like throwing anything, all taboo to the wind. They're like fuck it, tits, tits, tits. Right. You know what I mean? Anything right. they can, they're throwing in their films. And once Golan and Globus obtain uh, Canon films, they start doing stuff, especially things like uh, sex comedies. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing we should probably mention is that the gentleman who owned Canon films before Golan and Globus came in in '79 and bought it was that it almost went bankrupt. Canon films almost mm-hmm. went completely bankrupt, and I guess the market for <laughs> for softcore Swedish porn had finally started to dry up a bit as the years went on. So <laughs> yeah. Right. So those guys end up selling Canon Films to Golan and Globus for like $500,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then Golan and Globus in turn take that template that those uh, previous owners used to use and apply it, but 
also build on top of that. So instead of just buying like softcore porn from Sweden, they'd buy it from multiple different countries and then make English translations and release it that way. But also building on top of that, they would also make their own special little cheesy action films and sex comedies and stuff like that. And so Gullen, of course, ends up becoming the dreamer. I, I want to do this. And I'm going to win awards mm-hmm. and stuff. Whereas Globus is like mm-hmm. the money guy. Like, no, we don't have the money for that. Bring it down. Bring it down. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so yeah, right. It's right. weird. Yeah. So there's 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 way too many terrible terrible movies to go through one at a time. Oh God. It's, yeah. It, yeah. We could. We, pl- we, we We haven't seen most of them. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of them we haven't. So yeah. we're just gonna pick a handful and and. Uh, Probably one of their bigger successes is what we're going to start off with, and that's uh, yep. Breakin' from 1984. Was, believe it or not, was a was a <laughs> canon film. Now, don't jump to conclusions. I've seen them dance. Yeah, in the ghetto, maybe. But in the real dance world, against a disciplined art form, they're going to make fools of themselves. They're not going to stop us now. Who's next? Ozone! Street Dancer! But if you yep. watch it again, you know, as big as a hit as it was in 1984, right? It's not a good movie. <laughs> you know no. what I mean? No. No. It, it's basically one of those things that's casting in on something that's really popular at the time, mm-hmm. and they're just cramming a story to be semi glue in between this. I, I'm watching this story to get to the next breakdancing scene because right. this thing was huge. And there, there's a lot of people that actually credit this movie for being the start of offsprings of hip hop and all this stuff. Because like Ice T had a few hits in on the single for the or on the. He was album in the for, movie. Yeah, he's in the movie. Correct. The DJ is the glove, and he's the rapper throughout the whole thing. Right. Right. Well, I mean, to claim that they are the start of like hip hop and stuff like that—that's a pretty bold statement, I think. Well, I mean, I can contradict that. What I know what they were trying to do because as a connoisseur of fine hip-hop in the early 80s anyway um right the the, the movie that is more touted as a legit breakdancing movie is beat street legitimate shit just tell them about all the money you gonna make with me and kenny man because you know we gonna have album covers posters t-shirts man, charlie you always talking that shit you're damn right. And right. This beat that by a month, I think. Right. The whole thing was like, they heard about Beat Street or whatever, and they're like, we gotta make one. We gotta make ours faster and get it out before them and beat them to it. And they do beat them to the punch, and it does steal all the glory, even though it's, it's kind of a dumb movie. It's basically just, like, kind of meshing a bit of, a little bit of flash dancing, I guess. But you know, it's like this classic dancing versus street dancing and all this stuff, and and a whole lot of terrible dialogue in between. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that thing ends up being a really big hit for them. Mm-hmm. They they put like I think a little over a million dollars in it, and it ends up making like thirty something million back. So mm-hmm. a, a substantial hit, especially for Canon. I think it ends up being like the 18th highest grossing movie of 1984 or something like that. So, <laughs> and this is a big deal to them. Right. I mean, this in their mind really uh, uh, legitimizes. Yeah. yeah, legitimizes them, and and they're going up against the big dogs. They won in Tagalog, and he's just like, I I did it. I'm a genius. I'm a genius. Yes, yeah, correct. I know. It's it's all up from here. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, he just he thought it was all a winning streak. Like a nice easy coast. Right. Yeah. They, they could do no wrong after this. And so uh, I saw this not in the theater. I didn't even seek it out actually. My sister who was older than me, uh, she was in the breakdancing, mm-hmm. and so she ended up renting it. 
and uh, I just kind of watched it because she had got it. Yeah. And uh, wasn't super interested in it, but got a little bit into the rhythm of it, enough to watch it from beginning to end. And I probably was more interested in all the girls and leotards and shit like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So. And, you know. Well, did you see it in the theater? No, I know, I don't think I ever, ever saw any of those movies until um, probably the late 90s. Okay. Because there's three major hip-hop movies, and that's Wild Style, Beat Street, and Breakin'. And um, I think I saw Breakin' and Beat Street first, and then Wild Style a little later. Wild Style's older, and more, even more from the origins of of hip-hop, and, and very raw. Almost looks like it's made with home movies kind of oh. thing, and no acting at all. Okay. And I think I remember kind of seeing them all around the same time, kind of like... You know, oh shit! You know, my friends were into it, and uh, um, right, not really liking them anyway. I mean, the n- nostalgia of it for sure, but uh, breaking ages the the worst. Yeah, maybe, but not breaking to electric boogaloo. You got to give that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> you got to give props to electric boogaloo, man. Which was filmed within like uh, immediately after breaking. Yeah, They're like the minute that they found they had their opening week and they knew it was a big hit for them, they were, he immediately said, "Give me a script. I want to start shooting in like a, two weeks or something." Right, like and that. and and it literally just completely departed. I remember. Seeing in that documentary, the guy who played Ozone just talking about how depressed he was about how terrible this is right. and how it lost the vibe of the original movie and mm-hmm. blah, 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 Because it's basically they're, now they're using their breakdancing skills to save an orphanage or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right, you know, It's right, that right. whole little thing instead of losing kind of the whatever connection it had to the hip-hop and, you know, and dancing community. It, it's, it's straight from that just to become like a fairy tale story. And he was just like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. But I mean, what are you going to do? Because there, of course, there's a huge culture clash between Gollum and Globus and the real uh, young community, the American young community. And uh, although I'm sure they thought they had their finger on the pulse, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. And and then, of course, we didn't really necessarily say by this point, obviously, in a few years after they had purchased the company, they were starting to release more what they thought would be mainstream movies for American audiences. You know, right. they were trying to break into Hollywood, essentially. Right, and, and this is what did it. Right, Breakin' break was the one that was the first big success, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And probably the only one, right? I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, their Chuck Norris movies did well. Yeah, I'm sure they did, yeah, and that's true. Death Wish, Death, yeah. yeah, all of that stuff. That did they, Those things did I well. I think that's what really set them on their path for American movies was the Death Wish franchise, right? This kind of got the ball rolling for that well, yeah. in the yeah, early, I mean, early they, 80s. Yeah, they tell that funny story in the documentary where he's just like, we're going to do a sequel to the greatest motion picture of all time. And they were like, well, Godfather 2 already happened. He's like, no, 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 Death Wish, Death Wish 2. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and that's just kind of gives you insight into some of their, how, how especially Gollum. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gollum is, is. Yeah, I is, don't, it doesn't seem like Globus really had much of a. He was the money guy. He didn't. He really didn't care about what they were doing. He had no passion for it. He was all about the business transactions. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So Tim, while digging into this topic, did you end up finding more titles that you actually knew than what you thought you would? Well, because of that documentary that came out several years ago. Right. I think that documentary opened my eyes to how much they had done. You know what I mean? And I rewatched right. it to prep for this uh, uh, this recording. I rewatched the documentary, and 
kind of was amazed all over again. Like, holy shit, they did that. But the, but the, the one, you know, we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later, but I, the one movie I had no idea that they were a part of was, was Highlander. Insert Queen here. But I mean, really, seriously, how can you argue with that song, Sean Connery, and the acting ability of Christopher Lambert? Christopher Lambert. <laughs> yeah, or Lambert, if you read it off the paper. <laughs> Lambert. Yeah, because uh, the the funniest thing is, I think he's like from Belgium or something yeah. weird. He's he's yeah. Uh, I don't know what they have with the Belgium guys like Van Damme, but yep. He's in Highlander. He's playing a Scottish guy. Right. And then his mentor is <laughs> the most famous Scottish actor in the world, Sean Connery, who's playing a, a Spaniard, Spanish yeah. guy, <laughs> a Spaniard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, what? And he doesn't do anything to hide his Scottish accent. No, no, no He's basically no. talking like James Bond through the whole thing. Right. Hilarious. It's, it's basically Connery saying, if you want me to play this part, I'm going to play it the way I fucking want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So anyway, we're, we're not going to, that's not one of the ones we're going to talk about, but um, right. what, what about you? Honorable mention. Did, yeah, honorable mention. But um, but yeah, for me, yeah, there were quite a few because a lot of, the, like, looking from what they did probably in, I'd say from 82 on, mm -hmm. littered, littered my yeah. viewing uh, experience as a as a kid of watching cable or right. VHS. Right. It just littered it. I I started going through the list in the 70s. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. Get to the 80s, like, oh really? Oh really? Yeah, what? right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not that I had a huge uh, recollection of of what the whole story was, just recognizing the title or someone yeah. in the movie, and then realizing, oh yeah, I've seen that, and not realizing how bad it was. <laughs> What's funny too is now that you know that all of those titles were from the same house, you're like, well, that makes complete fucking yep. sense because every one of them is overachieving its budget by leaps and bounds, you know. But yet, as a little kid, you're some of them, you're just like, fuck yes, yeah. Chuck yeah, no. Norris. <laughs> Go kick some ass, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I can almost guarantee you that I learned what ninjas were from canon. Yeah. They were the ones mm -hmm. that did that those movies, and I learned the term ninja. Not saying that they were sincere and, and honored the traditional sense of what a ninja truly is from where it comes from and everything they just rob the name basically yeah no i don't think they honor what a ninja actually you know supposed theoretically is and and right and feudal japan speaking of ninjas yeah we are on to our next movie of the of of the list which is uh, ninja 3 the domination also in 1984. <laughs> also starring the same white girl from Breaking. Lucienda Dickey. You know, they wanted to change my look. Um, I had very long straight hair, and they wanted, you know, me to look a little bit more like Flashdance, <laughs> like Jennifer Beals. Um, so I went through several permanents um, that first week. I still hadn't read a script <laughs> for like the first week <laughs> that I was there. This Ninja 3 was made before Breaking. Oh, okay. But they had to rush breaking so fast, and uh, and I, apparently Golan was so taken with that girl, uh, 
yeah, Luciana, that he was like, you are going to be my canon go-to girl. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, and she is pretty. She is a pretty yeah. girl. You know, she no, has no, that for sure. very kind of Pat Benatari feathery hair <laughs> thing going on. You know. Totally. Yeah. So they, she did Ninja 3. And then he put her immediately in Breaking, and that had such a fast turnover because they wanted to beat Beat Street right. that Breaking ended up coming out before it. And then Ninja 3, the domination comes out afterwards. I saw this on cable. Okay. And I remember thinking, like, that's the chick for Breaking. Right, right. So, but we should probably talk about the cr- chronology of this a little bit <laughs> because it is Ninja 3, right? <laughs> right? What are the other two movies? Well, the first one, they basically said, okay, we must do our own Bruce Lee movie, but we'll change it. It won't be Kung Fu. It'll be ninjas. And, it, right. and we'll just take the title from his best movie, Enter the Dragon, and change it to Enter the Ninja. <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, uh, the sequel to that is Revenge of the Ninja. And I remember that one as a kid. You said you yeah. saw Enter the Ninja as a kid. I remember the Enter the Ninja the ninja never saw the sequel that you saw and i'm i'm the opposite i've never seen enter the ninja but i've seen revenge of the ninja and um my parents did not allow me to watch rated r movies until about the age of 12 so there was a night my parents (laughs) were my you know my sister's probably you know she's older than me so she's probably out doing her high school or stuff and um my parents were out with friends for the night or something like that so i was home alone and i'm probably about 10 or 11 and uh (laughs) <laughs> we had the dial style TV, you know, where you got to sit in front of it and no remotes. HBO was channel five. Uh-huh. So, and I knew that Revenge of the Ninja was coming on that night. So <laughs> I'm like kneeled down in front of the television with my hand on the dial <laughs> with, and about my, my, my face is like a <laughs> foot away from the screen. Cause I'm waiting for my parents to come through the garage door at any so minute could- so I could turn the <laughs> dial and just make it and my my plan was I'll just make it look like I was sitting here channel surfing you know even though there's only six channels (laughs) (laughs) you know so and every you know so I'm watching the whole movie like this for two hours I sat on my knees or an hour and I'm sure it's only an hour and a half that movie 80 80 minutes at best right yeah and uh but there was a few times I heard shit and would just like flip the channel real quick and look over (laughs) my shoulder flip it back and but yeah the, there's only two things i really remember from the movie because and probably for a good reason because i think the storyline is completely incoherent and <laughs> doesn't follow any real story right there's no a to b it's kind of like a to g to g to x to y to v you know no way yeah <laughs> the only two th- scenes i remember is um there's a scene where he's chasing a guy in a van or something like that show kasuji who's the the resident ninja, uh, you know, and he was huge back in the eighties as the nin- the guy, the go-to ninja guy. Right. And um, he plays the hero in this, and he's uh, on a van or something, and at some point he gets kicked off the van and he's dragged from the back, you know, kind of like, and and when he <laughs> raider style. Yeah, exactly, raider style, and then he hops up into the thing, and his clothes are all torn up, and that's one thing. And then the bad guy ninja, who was a white guy, had this chrome mask or something like that, and they have the final battle on the rooftop of some thing with their swords and shit and that guy gets cut in the neck and he kind of does that slowly going down thing with the blood right. like squirting way the <laughs> fuck out of his neck and I had never seen that before as a as right. a 10 year old I never really knew about the whole if you cut an artery it squirts in your right. blood so that kind of like holy You're shit like, 
Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of disturbed me. Right. But then, you know, bragging about it on the bus on Monday morning, you know. <laughs> right. Dude, the way the blood was shooting out of his neck. That's cool. <laughs> the coolest guy in school. But Ninja 3, The Domination, you said you saw a long time ago, right? Because I was super into, by this time, probably due to canon, I was really into, like, ninja shit. Anything ninja, I would, you know, right. ooh, I would, I'm going to rent this. Right. And the only things I remembered about it upon before watching it again for this show was I remembered the scene where she's possessed. They go to see this spiritualist guy and, mm-hmm. and he's doing some ritual with her and she starts spinning around on the chains, chains and yeah, stuff right. like that. So I remembered that part and I remembered there was a scene because she keeps the sword from this guy who's possessing her right. in her closet right. and the closet opening up. Yeah. With bright lights coming out of it and the whole room turning on end and like she's being pulled into the closet. And yeah, thinking, it's just like in Poltergeist. Poltergeist, yeah, right. Yeah, it's a total ripoff of it. Yeah, totally. And I remember those two scenes and then her, her this fight between her and another another ninja inside this like dilapidated house and they're like breaking through the floorboards and stuff like that and remember loving it right you know? so right when i rewatched it for this all of those parts the minute we get to those scenes i'd be like oh this is what i remember <laughs> no this is what i remember yeah. and that was pretty much the only interest that i had <laughs> <laughs> except for the sexy v8 scene yeah right i know which is the most disgusting thing ever <laughs> Anybody who's watched Ninja knows about the V8 juice. When I tilted my head back and poured, it like went all over me. And then I, you know, do this back bend out of the chair, couch, whatever it was, onto the floor. So I know this movie because of, I'm a fan of the podcast, How Did This Get Made? And they covered this about, I think, less than a year ago. And sometimes I will watch the movie ahead of them. Uh, so that I can laugh along with them a little more. And and so I watched Ninja 3 The Domination. And <laughs> sometimes when you watch movies that are really bad like this, you're almost embarrassed. Even though you're sitting there by yourself, you're thinking, why am I, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just awful. Although you do say I'm to just... yourself, you're like, if I wasn't watching this, I would still be watching something probably equally terrible. So. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I just, this is so ridiculous. Anyway. Oh, ridiculous. Rid- ridiculous. Yeah, there's a scene where she's seducing her boyfriend or whatever. She does her little flash dance stance and then uh, yeah. takes a can of V8 juice, vegetable juice, and pours it down her chest for the guy to lick off of her that is the most non-sexy fluid <laughs> you could pour on yourself it's like yeah spicy and got little chunks of lettuce in it <laughs> it's, it's like what were they thinking well i mean i'm sure they were thinking that i mean they even say in the movie she's kind of a health nut so what would she have in there she would have water and she would have v8 yeah right plus right. she she worked for like i think the phone company yeah she, she does she's like she works for the phone company the poles. she climbs the poles yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's telling us that she's worked for the phone company. She's really athletic. She does the aerobic stuff yeah. and all of that. She doesn't like coffee, which is what she said. <laughs> Luckily, because if she would have poured that on her chest, she would have scorched her pits. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but right, yeah. Right. So it's setting all of that stuff up to let us know who she is. Well, anyway, um, so she she's out on the job in the beginning, like uh, uh, on her telephone job. She comes across a ninja who was just like shot to death, but somehow survives and trans yeah. transfers his soul into her blah 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 but there's another ninja that that guy's been fighting 
Right. That's Shokasuji again <laughs> for his third <laughs> appearance. Oh, and by the way, Ninja 3 has literally nothing to do plot-wise <laughs> with Ninjas 1 and 2. Enter right. the Ninja. If, right. if you think you're missing something from the movie because you're watching 3 and you haven't seen the other ones, if you and if you're thinking, I'll go back and watch those and that'll fill in the blanks, ain't going to do it. No, no, it has nothing to do with it. Yeah. But and, uh, going back to Shokasuji... Um, <laughs> like I was saying earlier, I was obsessed with this guy because when I was like nine, ten years old, I wanted to be a friggin' ninja, right? And I, 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 <laughs> right. I remember there was a, a pharmacy where we lived, and my mom actually worked there for a while. But we went down there, uh, and, they, and on the magazine rack there was Black Belt magazine, and it had a ninja with chainmail on the front, and it said on it Shokasuji. <laughs> and I remember going, Oh, I gotta get this, Mom, get me this magazine, right? And I had this, <laughs> so I. It was one of those things where I read that magazine 30 times over and oh. you get to the end and you're like starting over. Yeah, exactly. I kept it for like 20 years and, right. and I actually, I had a ninja outfit. I actually got a ninja uniform that I used to have. Right. I ordered it out of that magazine. So like one of the pages had like the clipping cut out from the order form for that ninja thing. And it wasn't. What was cool about my ninja outfit was it, it didn't have like a baklava pull over your head sock thing and then you put the thing around. This had the more traditional where it was two pieces of cloth and you had to know how to fold it the way they did back in the traditional way. Oh, wow. So it would give you, the, it would give you those angled points up at the, the, the forehead right. and then you'd wrap the thing around. It was cool. <laughs> the, only, the only thing I never, I, I got a wooden sword, you know, what they called a boken, which is like a, a, a practice sword. But it was pa right. it was painted black, and because the blade was straight, it was considered a ninja boken. <laughs> you know, versus a samurai boken, it would have been bent, curved. Right. And um, I mean, it even had the the gauntlet covers where with the middle finger loop, so it would cover your your the palms of your hands, so you could only see your fingers at night, your fingers and your eye sockets. What was I going to say? I couldn't afford the tabby boots. I don't know if everybody, everybody <laughs> knows anything about ninjas. Their boots, they had like a uh, space in the toe right. where you could, so you could climb trees and climb ropes. <laughs> kind of. So I, I didn't have those. So what I did was, is I bought a black pair of socks that I would put on and a, a black, uh, I, 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 I had like these black and blue flip-flops. But I, over the blue parts, I used black marker to cover them out. And I would put them <laughs> over the socks, and they would look like tabby boots because my toes would be separated from the rest. And I'm like, yeah, running around in the dark. Wow. Ninja. Wow. Lovely. Still to this day, Tim wears that outfit on the weekends and pours V8 on himself and has himself just a lovely, <laughs> lovely time. <laughs> yeah, really. Yamahama. Good times, good times. You know, the other thing, too, was there was a TV show called The Master in the 80s, which was yep. about ninjas and stuff. And Shokasuji played the bad guy ninja in that. And Lee Van Cleef yep. plays the uh, older guy, the, the mentor to the young ninja guy. I think it's yep. one of those shows that only lasted about a half a season. A season. Yeah, yeah, right. Is that what a real ninja would do? Smokescreen. Illusion. Give them what they expect and they'll believe it. What are we really doing? The unexpected. And I remember yep. as like all these shows from the 80s that were cool like that. I'm like, why don't they last more than a season? <laughs> oh, because they're terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, 
you know, and poor Lee Van Cleef at that time. Yeah. I think he was pretty close to death by then. Yeah, I don't think he lived much longer past that. Right. I think even when he was doing Escape from New York, he wasn't well. Right. Yeah. But anyway. As a, as bad as some of the films get, though, um, is there, you think there's any redeeming qualities to the, any of these canon films? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I would say yes and also no. Uh <laughs> Rewatching some of these films that we rewatched for this uh, show, I definitely tapped into some of the nostalgia as a kid mm-hmm. and had fun with some of the things that were going on and remembered certain aspects of the film. And, and so that was fun. But the more of these things, out of most of these movies you rewatch from canon, you start to put aside that nostalgia and you can't help but see anything but the issues with the films. And that's where it starts to become a little cumbersome watching some of them but for yeah. sure i i had fun watching it so right yeah there was fun as soon as the nostalgia wears off right you're, right yeah, yeah. you're I, just tolerating it there. I, I i feel like what i'm noticing after kind of revisiting some of the stuff even over the past few years mm-hmm. it's more or less like the idea of these movies is great and funny right and fun but watching them is a chore mm-hmm. the, you know what i mean so it's more about the lore and the ridiculousness of mm-hmm. of the topics they tackled and how poorly they tackled them right that really just it's fun to reflect on but then for sure yeah you start to you try to watch like this next movie we're about to talk about <laughs> um <laughs> i watched uh last i think last saturday i was trying to watch this uh, king solomon's minds with uh alan quartermain and a very young sharon stone mm-hmm. and richard chamberlain playing the lead quartermain i'd like to thank you you've well, you've been very kind to me. Kindness had nothing to do with it. It's the thought of all those 10-pound diamonds that's appealing. <laughs> you don't even believe in the mines. Um, uh, and, and a very, very young Sh- uh, Sharon Stone. Mm-hmm. Looking, she looks absolutely gorgeous. And yeah. This, you know, she's got to be like 22, 23 years old in this... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She was apparently too a big bitch on this set too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody couldn't. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, what's his name? Richard Chamberlain mm-hmm. had some things to say about her. Yeah, she. It was probably all method. She knew she was going to get the role in Casino and just wanted all right. the experience. Right, right. So, for, uh, <laughs> I tried to watch this last week, and basically, what these guys did was kind of just. Not unlike breaking, trying to beat Beat Street to the film, you know, like uh, we got to jump on this bandwagon or taking Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and changing it up to become Enter the Ninja. Right. You know, they, they, they would take ideas and just kind of recycle them in their own image. And, and King Solomon's Mine is a perfect example of them taking uh, uh, ripping off Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Alan Quartermain is supposed to be Indiana Jones and... Um, the uh, Sharon Stone is very much like uh, Kate Capshaw. Kate Capshaw in uh, T- uh, Temple of Doom. You know, they're oh, very, yeah. very similar, very kind of annoying, whiny, whiny characters. <laughs> yeah, right. And and a lot of the beats are the same and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. and, and I gotta say, <laughs> it's so sloppy and so again, just there's no real story but yet it's hitting all the same beats as right. Raiders of the Lost Ark 
There's just, I, I'm guessing it's because there's not much, even though Gol, Golan has a lot of passion, I don't think it makes it to the set with the director and the writers and all that stuff because it's so passionless that all, it's just, it falls so flat. He even has a scene, Alan Quartermain, where he's being dragged behind the train on the rails there and he's wiggling around exactly the same way the stunt double does for Indiana Jones when he's got his whip hooked on the truck mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, you know and it's it's like almost identical the movie and the, the most ins- you know I had forgotten this because I did see this on VHS when it was relatively new like 86 87 maybe right Jonathan Rhys Davies is in it <laughs> as the main, you know, kind of the, the main heavy baddie. Unless you reveal the way to the mines, I will pluck out your eye and I will crush it underfoot like a grape. I will do this with various parts of your body until you are but a stub. And I was, I, as soon as I saw his face, I got instant, I genuinely angry because I'm like, <laughs> you're in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you son of a bitch. <laughs> How can you not? You're in fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you and now you're in this movie. Like two, you know, three years later, yeah, four, or actually, it's four, four, yeah, four years. But I mean, you had to have been able to read the script and say, "Wow, this is a complete ripoff of the very successful, very awesome movie I did five, four years right. ago." Yeah. Uh, but I'm gonna do it anyway, you know. Uh, mm. I don't know. I, I just I was insulted to see him in the movie. <laughs> right. Well. You know, Gollum from canon, he definitely has passion. There's no denying it. <laughs> but his, his, unfortunately, his passion is a little misplaced. And what I mean by that yeah. is he he loves movies, but he doesn't have an idea for original movie. He just steals the idea from movies yeah. he loves. Right. He's like the next Ed Wood. Yeah. He's literally the next Ed Wood. Like, yep. I'm going to be the biggest movie producer ever, you know, <laughs> yeah. in my Johnny Depp version of Ed Wood. And, and right. uh, you know, has all this affection and passion for movies and just yeah. has no fucking talent for making it happen. <laughs> right. And the problem is, is that he, if he's doing it himself, he's just taking from ideas that he knows. So, you know, oh, I, I really liked Indiana Jones, so we'll do it. But, you know, we don't have... 12 million dollars to do ours we're gonna do ours for five but it's still gonna be as good and we're sitting you know and so yeah, right if the joke doesn't work oh fuck it the next one will work you know yeah, right right <laughs> and right. if the scene doesn't work ah fuck it we'll get we'll get to it you know what i mean he and so in that way i think he that's where it's off kilter mm-hmm. is he all of the things that he loves about american movies is the stuff he's trying to cram into the movies he's making for america but it mm-hmm. gets siphoned through his filter and then right. He's okay with all the flaws, and he's yeah. okay with all the low-budgetness and the bad takes and all of that stuff. Whereas the a lot of the directors, if you watch that documentary, a lot of the directors and the actors and stuff are there to play, but they just they're they're given nothing to work with, and so right. they're like, "Fuck, I'm stuck in this thing. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> I just yeah. gotta make the best of it," kind of thing. Right. And so you can really see. I didn't watch King Solomon Mines for this one. I remember it enough. Mm-hmm. So I watched the sequel because I don't think I'd ever seen the sequel. And plus, it had which is the Lost City of Gold, right? Right, which is a sequel. Mm-hmm. And I watched that one, and 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 you can see everyone on board play. I mean, even James Earl Jones is in the sequel, and you wow. can see they're all doing their best with what they got, but no one's gonna make anything good out of what they got. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And I, and that reminds me of a big point they make in the in the canon documentary is um. That these two guys together, especially Colin, with that passion, he could fucking sell, uh, you know, 
yeah sell fire to a, a house that's on fire kind of thing right. and it's obvious because he does get some pretty big muscle in uh, as yeah. far as acting goes throughout the you know some of the years uh, you know. but then once it comes time to actually make the shit it yeah. all gets thrown to hell these guys are doing back then before it was ever done what they do now whereas they sell a concept yeah and then they sell that concept and then they go okay now we need to make a script to match yeah, the concept yes, we right, sold those guys right. so we can make this and we'll use the money they gave yeah, us these that. are the guys that invented that technique that is essentially right. the way hollywood works now right so pioneering in a lot of ways yeah yeah, yeah. No, but so that, that also it, we it, could point it to the downfall of hollywood <laughs> yeah no totally totally yeah, because yeah. that's why you get uh, oh this this game doom is popular so we'll right. make another fucking movie and who right. are we gonna put in it well let's put the rock because he's a big bad wrestler in it yeah right right you know so you can see that kind of rubbing off on the same thing so a lot of those a lot of ingenuity that they do have on their side runs alongside disastrous decisions that mm-hmm. they're making at the exact same time so all of this ingenuity that they they make up for they they ruin with <laughs> this, these disastrous things that they're doing, and it's more so Gollum because he's the one that's that's mm-hmm. in it. You know, Globus is just like, like as I said, he's the money guy. Like, bring it down a bit. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. it's costing too much. Bring it down a bit. Right. Well, and long story short, I fell asleep, and I don't even, I didn't even finish the movie. It was that much of a strain but like with these other ones we've talked about there's just no uh continuity through storytelling you know what i mean it just jumps around or there's no aim there's no direction right as far as yes we have this goal at the end but we're just kind of ramble our way through these adventurous action scenes that have no that are just dropped in the middle of it you know right right yeah and poorly executed you have uh uh you know these actors that are stuck in the middle of this thing trying to fight their way through whatever they can to get to the end and if you're wondering like oh this one thing must have done well enough to get a sequel at least well they made both of them back to back because they thought this thing was going to be so big Mm -hmm. and it's cashing in on the success of indiana jones that we might as well make two that way Mm -hmm. we'll have both of them back to back we'll have two sequels ready to go we can fire off one so they they filmed both of them I guess on the allusion to everyone involved that we're going to film two of them and each one is going to have a $5 million budget, the first one and the second one. But then by the time they started shooting it, one had a $2.5 million budget and the second one had a 2.5 million. Yeah, you know, right. so that, that's how they, they ended up get, getting that. So that that was their thing. And even Gollin in, in an interview at the time, before this was before the mid-80s, he was talking about... Did you ever make a $30 million movie? Never. I don't know what to do with $30 million. I, I can make 30 mo- movies, maybe, you know? But I don't know what to do with 30 millions. And that was their goal, and that is what made them so popular. They were huge because mm-hmm. they would put out these low-budget films and then get a, a big return because they wouldn't spend a lot. And whatever they didn't recoup on one, that was a... F- Complete flop, yeah. Yeah, another one would... Do uh, well another enough. Another three yeah. would yeah. do well enough to recoup anything that that lost, and th- that was a great thing. The problem is, is the massive success of Breakin'. Mm-hmm. made him change that philosophy to where right. he started, okay, well, instead of spending five, let's spend ten. Well, I want to get this actor, so let's give them what they want. So if I have to pay $12 million just for an actor, let's do it. And, of course, that brings in talent if you're just going to throw money at them. Right. But what the problem is, is <laughs> you're still throwing the same amount of useless passion <laughs> at the right. projects. And so it's, yeah, it's an, it's an inevitable bad ending. <laughs> Hey there, folks. 
we just wanted to let you know in case you wanted to reach out and have any questions for us or even wanted to answer some of the questions that we post to each other during the show you can find us on instagram and facebook at at tftfp podcast yes sometimes you might want to use twitter instead Yes. And, it, and if that's the case, mm-hmm. you go to uh, the address there, it's a little different. It's podcast TFTFP. Hey, if you want to send us a shiny old email, you can do that at tftfppodcast at gmail.com. That is beyond the truth, my friend. Mm. Yeah, there's the truth, and then you can go beyond it. That's what we just did. <laughs> we went beyond the truth. So let's say you're looking for a little more content from us. Let's say mm. you have an interest, and you're willing to put down a little bit, a tiny bit of jack for it. Yes, yes. We have a Patreon page. We sure do. And the link for that page will be down below there. In the description. Right. Or you can just use your lazy little fingers there to type it into Google. Yeah, that's a good Whatever idea. Whatever you want. Yeah. And do us all a favor and like, subscribe, and review us because it helps us out. So to give give you a gist of what a fucking movie factory this is, (laughs) Canon Films, the one we just talked about, Mm. the one we're about to talk about, Mm -hmm. and then the one that comes after that... (laughs) All came out in 1985. Yeah. And these were just a few picks out of yeah, the mini. Out of a, yeah, there's plenty more. So the next one we're going to talk about is a, is the uh, Captain Chuck Norris in a Invasion USA. If you come back in here, I'm going to hit you with so many rights, you're going to beg for a left. So I have more of a connection with this one than you do, I'm sure. Yes, I've never seen it. Right. And so uh, Chuck Norris, in, back in the day, in the early 80s, was a pretty big deal, mainly thanks to Cannon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, I mean, he had done stuff before it, of course, yeah. and he was known in a lot of different circles. So, yeah, he had some minor success in, well, of course, he was in the Bruce Lee movie uh, where right. Bruce Lee beats him up. And there was, uh, like, I remember a f- couple of random titles from hbo a force of one the octagon uh forced vengeance lone wolf mcquaid those were all movies i kind of remember as a kid before he got to the canon thing right and right. then uh shortly after that i think he's he hooks up with canon and they're like we're gonna make you our biggest star yeah you, our, we love all your movies right right you're gonna be the next charles bronson <laughs> yeah the two chucks yeah so, yeah, Invasion USA, I'm betting I saw it's probably either in 88 or 89. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I saw it is because I saw Die Hard in 88. And then I remember going to my neighborhood mom and pop video store. Right. And being all up up in arms and loving D- Die Hard so much. And the guy behind the counter was like, listen, kid, come here. If you like Die Hard, check this out. <laughs> Invasion USA. Invasion USA. And so I take that home and I watch it. And he was right. I loved the fuck out of it. <laughs> what a dumb kid you were. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, take off that ninja mask and talk to me. <laughs> talk to me like a man. Um, uh, Touche, mon frere. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. Like rewatching it. 
uh, years later. I didn't rewatch it for this, but I, I saw it probably three or four years ago. I watched clips. I watched a series of clips on it before we started recording and just kind of to get a vibe and the feeling. And it's so like macho gun violent, you know, like over the top shooting things, you know, and people probably that he was trying to shoot should have died a lot earlier for the amount of bullets flying past them. Right. But it would have been too soon and not, you know, glorious enough. Right. And then the the, the two things that really kind of stuck out in the clips that I watched, uh, there's a <laughs> scene where these, I don't know if it's supposed, to, there's German run foreigners, like, in a, you know, invading USA, kind of like the title says, and uh, setting up a bomb in front of a church, which is happening at night. Uh, there's people in the church and they're, they're all singing this... Uh, him or whatever it is and it's just really fucking corny right yeah as soon as i saw that scene i'm thinking in my head i'm imagining both probably golan and the director going all right how do we really get the audience on this we get a bunch of innocent white people <laughs> in a church a place of god you know right. and they're singing and giving their heart outs to the song you know of the lord and uh, they're gonna get blown up that's how evil these guys are these guys are gonna to blow them the fuck up right, right. Yeah. so that's the one scene and then the other scene is like uh, um these dudes are in this like uh old ford granada and they're driving alongside a uh, school bus and put a bomb on the side and as they go inside the school bus they do the exact same beat that they did from the church but they have the kids singing like 99 bottles of beer on the wall <laughs> and and it's also to kind of like this is a school but it's like to emphasize school bus children's innocent laughter and right. singing you know to make it right. seem that much more tragic that they're about to get blown up and how evil right. these how guys bad are. these guys are right right and it's 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 so hand-fisted that it's repulsive <laughs> right no i get you it, the movie is definitely one of those things the last time i rewatched it i noticed that it, it's it's one that if you're not willing to give yourself over to the time it came out, it could probably be a not-so-great watch for you uh, if you do that. Because, you know, Chuck is rocking this orange mullet thing going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Plus, he's got the jean ensemble that he's wearing. It's like a jean jacket vest and jeans and his boots. He's, and he's, he's definitely starting to build that image he's now famous for of that kind of right wing cowboy don't fuck with Texas kind of guy. Right, right. Because every movie he's in at this point, he's driving a big lifted truck. Mm, yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. He is building, he's consciously building a persona that he realizes that if this works out for me, I can ride this kind of persona to the winter of my life type of deal, you know? Right, right. Another one of the positives of the film, I will say, is whoever came up with the idea of knowing, because apparently this movie was a victim of having the shit cut out of it. Yeah. And uh, apparently Chuck had many more lines that he had to deliver and more emotions to emote mm -hmm. and that was all cut out just to make it bare bones action wall to wall kind of thing uh -huh. and that helps it unlike clint eastwood you know he could look at a script see a bunch of lines and say hey i don't need to say all this i just i'll just give a look mm -hmm. chuck norris needs a little more help <laughs> and he got that apparently and that's probably one of the things that helped this movie yeah he is an athlete turned actor Poorly, You're right. Yeah, I, w I will give him credit for that because a lot of the stuff he's in, no matter how off kilter things seem, because it's coming from that very '80s stance and the ultra violence and all of this shit, is that they do manage to do that. And they, again, 
no, no matter how skewed the vision is, they were ahead of the curve because this movie did okay, mm-hmm. but... 1988 Die Hard comes out and it's pretty much the same thing except instead of outside in the town it's inside in a building mm-hmm. and it's a massive success that spawned like eight sequels and yeah. pretty much kept Bruce Willis eating for the rest of his career right so that's another one where you can look and see okay they they were on the right path they were just offset a bit <laughs> yeah yeah and just a huge appetite with a very uh, small plate <laughs> you know <laughs> right yeah, uh, I read a little bit about the making of, of the movie and everything, and apparently they lucked in to a lot of things in this movie that helped them add a lot of production value to the film without having a huge budget. And so they go into this town, the terrorists in the film, and they blow up like half of the neighborhood and mm-hmm. they tear up this mall and stuff. And apparently all of that stuff was in the way of an airport they were about to build. And so it was set to be demolished anyway. Right. They went in there and said, hey, we can blow the hell out of this shit for you and uh, add to our movie. And, and so <laughs> right, right, right. That little thing ended up adding a whole lot of production value right. to the right. movie. And it shows. It does work in that way. And if you're, do- like I say, if you're willing to give yourself over to the time and the goofiness of some of it, it really is a little bit of, of fun to watch. Well, let me ask you this, Tim. Do you feel that Chuck Norris would have the career he has today without being with Canon? Probably, yeah. I think he might have fizz, started fizzling out in the early 80s there. I think there's right. a chance because I, he's one of the ones, you know, like, where I feel like Charles Bronson was just like, oh, fuck, I guess I'll just do another one of these for a paycheck. Yeah. I feel like Chuck Norris really f- kind of gelled with these guys. And yeah. I feel like he really thought of this as the best thing that's ever happened to him. Right. And so since nobody's told him otherwise, it's it's the best thing that's ever happened to him. <laughs> In a weird reality, it was the best, best thing that ever happened yeah, to him. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, because he got, you know, missing in action and missing in action too. Those things were huge. Those yeah. things were really big. This I think was Delta pretty, Force was theirs too, right? Yeah, that was a big one. Yeah. That was a huge one. Right. And so, you know, all of those, it went on enough for him to get enough of a big head that when they offered, I guess they wrote American Ninja for him years later, he said, I don't want to do that because I don't want to do a movie where my face is hidden half the time. You know, he's already <laughs> at that time. Yeah, you know? right. And, you know, so th- I think what you're saying about in- Invasion USA is him setting up this image that he's mm-hmm. going to go on later to profit on for Texas Walker, Texas Ranger. That mm-hmm. thing made, I mean, that went nine seasons. People love the fuck out of that. Yeah. And I, I think, think it, if it, it, that Im- it starts with Lone Wolf McQuaid because he's got this right. the big truck and, right. you know, he is a Texas Ranger in that movie. And, right. uh, uh, you know, and then it seems like that's where he locks in. He's right. less about the karate and more about the American justice. Right. You know what I mean? And so who better to take a lone wolf McQuaid, which probably did pretty well, but then mm-hmm. you get Gollum saying, oh my God, I loved it. I'm going to make you a star, which he right, said to right, everyone right. apparently. Right. You know, so when you got that guy in front of you and he's willing to pay you, why not ride that wave? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, man. American, I want to negotiate. Do you hear me, American? Loud and clear. All right, so what do, now will we get into... Uh, 1985 again. 1985, as we said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, we're not going any, you know, 
any deeper in the chronology here. <laughs> but we're going to talk about Life Force, which is uh, bananas. I had a meeting with uh, Menachem Golan, and I sat down, uh, and he slid this book across the table to me. It said Space Vampire. And he says, uh, you do this film. And so I picked a book up and I was leaving the office. Uh, and he said, Toby, he said, you know. And I turned around and he said, I mean it. Their legal department and the agents worked out a deal in a couple of days and then I was off to do the movie. I mean, it was that simple. I mean, th th things at Canon were that simple. You, you know, you bypass all the development things that you usually have to go through. And, uh, and they, they, were, they, they were showmen, you know, they, they were about show business. Toby Hooper, yeah, he got signed yeah. on to a three contract deal. So Life Force is these, I will say, like some of the shit doesn't look good. There are some effects in it though that really look good. And this is where you're starting to see the diversion of his, of what Gollum said was a, a small budget, a lot of output. Mm -hmm. Now he's starting to okay. Let's throw more money at it. So I think he got he he gave Life Force like a seventeen million dollar budget or something mm -hmm. like that. Maybe twenty. It's a big budget film for especially for Canon. Right. That's the thing again. You know they sign on Toby Hooper because the only way anyone could get him to do a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre was to assure him that he could do his own other projects that he wanted to do and w which was invaders from mars right and so those guys sign him on he does texas chainsaw 2 for them and they hate what he did with it because he he, he was making a satirical horror mm -hmm. film right and so they're like what the fuck is this and no one else got it either people went to i saw texas chainsaw 2 in the theater yeah and because I was terrified of the first one, and then I'm like, oh, fuck, they're still in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I remember going to see it, and even in that instance, be being terrified of the first one and seeing the second one and thinking, like, this is goofy. Like, yeah. it's like, and, you know, and Dennis Hopper's in it, or freaking out on mm. whatever, and it's just it's just a loopy film. Right. Life Force, I think a lot of the, it's the, uh, most of the practical stuff. There's a few things, because uh, um, there's a lot of like the the light ray beam and stuff like that that looks right. decent. And some of the people getting sucked, you know, the Life Force sucked out of them or whatever. That doesn't look too bad. But yeah, right. it was essentially like some of the, the vampire, the, the bat people and right. the space uh, scenes are just really bad. Right. Best thing about it is the villainess is this. Yes extremely supple yes beautiful uh, french actress <laughs> <laughs> yeah who is literally naked for like head to toe from the beginning wow. to the end yep it goes from their beginnings of like making smut films oh, you know yeah. what i mean and they're like totally. well we know it sells let's put it in here yep i can imagine reading <laughs> the script and all the wonky weird ass things going in it but just like Wait a minute, is this chick going to be naked through this whole thing? <laughs> yeah, right. And Gollum immediately being like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> naked, naked. Yeah. Patrick Stewart is in this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like just before uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, I think. He needed and, a uh, paycheck, man. Come yeah. On. Wow. Yeah. The only other thing I know him, I, I'm sure he'd been in other stuff, but he was in Excalibur in like 1980. Right. Uh, uh, but... I can't think of much that he he was in, and then he becomes a huge star yeah. because of the 
Jean Luc Star Picard. Trek. Yeah. And X Men. <laughs> X Men later on, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is starting to what I was saying earlier, enter into a new realm for canon where they're they're still spending money on these small little budget things but they're not doing as many they're taking more money and they're putting and what they're doing is they're siphoning out of money projects that they're they're selling the they're the selling ideas. The, the ideas for and whatever money the they get to make the make that mm -hmm. they're putting into other projects instead of making that project so then they start falling behind and they keep thinking oh well you know we're putting we'll make it up on the next one yeah right well may and this is where that really starts to slip yeah starts getting away from them yeah yeah because I you gotta imagine that if they would have kept to that thing i mean they were doing at the time they were probably doing as good or maybe even better than uh, Roger Corman because mm -hmm. Roger Corman has maintained success his whole life because he's stuck to that core value of not going to spend a lot and we spend a little on a lot and then a lot of movies and then whatever doesn't make it the other ones that do make up for that and then I get my profit back and then I put it into something else and but I feel like um, as many so many movies as that guy did they're none of them stand out the way that these canon movies do. Oh, no, no, not none at all. None of them. None of them. The thing that I think the claim to fame that Roger Corman has the most out of all of, out of all of these He's making things, stars. <laughs> yeah. He, everyone that we know that are huge today, right. came, came, from directors to actors, yeah. came from this guy. He right. made these people. Like Jack Nicholson being the first, right. one of the first big names that he launched. Right. Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and James, James Cameron. Cameron. And yeah, all of these huge hitters. And, of course, Menahem Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it was... It, it's the perfect recipe and time for these the campy movies. Yeah. You know? When you think of 80s and the kind of ridiculousness of that decade, all of these movies fit into it perfectly. Yep. You know? We are like those troubadours in the Middle Ages who used to go to the marketplaces and tell fairy tales, tell story to the people who had dreary lives. I believe that all of us are looking for one, one of the great things that we are all looking for is more life. Life, another life. Life beyond what we are limited to. Life beyond E.T. Life up there. And that what cinema provides us. It's practically a godliest art. Let's finally jump into uh, uh, another uh, one year ahead. We're finally moving at least one year ahead, and we're going to uh, talk about... Um, a big ego project. A big ego project. It's, it's uh, Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. Stallone is a cop called Cobra. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I fucking loved this movie. See, I didn't see it until I was a teen, probably like 17 or something like that. Right. And um, it was basically, it was like, uh, I was, I used to house sit for my friend who lived a couple houses up from me in, in uh, Tucson and his family would go back east every 
every summer and they uh, would pay me to mow the lawn and feed their dogs and all this shit and they had mm-hmm. some VHSs and uh, Cobra was one of them and I, t- I remember taking it oh, home okay. I remember watching this thing and uh, it was kind of like a midday summer time of course because I'm watching Cobra you know and my dad is a car guy and I'm a car <laughs> guy but he basically f- formed my opinion on cars and uh, Cobra, <laughs> Cobra in the movie drives like a early 50s Mercury, which is kind of like the quintessential lead sled custom car, mm-hmm. right? right? It's the one that it's probably the most popular custom car. I'm not going to say this one is the best looking one. Right. <laughs> it it, it kind of has some clunky design to it and all that stuff. Yeah. But it's still a decent car. And I remember I'm watching it, uh, the movie, and my dad comes home from, from work and, you know, he's wearing his tie and everything. And. He's like, what is this? And I go, oh, it's Cobra, you know? And it's right happening in that chase scene where the car's right. being jumped around and all that stuff, the, right. the, the Mercury. My dad yeah. being an old-timey hot rodder guy as a kid, you know, growing up, that's he's like looking at it, and he's, he's not saying anything. He's just kind of yeah. looking over his shoulder, like, to see what's going to go on. Right. We get to that climactic scene where he goes, get down, and the car flips over and explodes or whatever, and... You know, they show the thing just completely fucking rolled over and wreck, and they really do roll over a, a, a yeah. early '50s Mercury. Right. And my dad just go, <laughs> he just kind of snickers and goes, "What a waste!" <laughs> and just turns and walks away. Can't even watch any more of it, you know. And then it was—it was funny. Is like the way he said it, it hit me. I'm like, yeah, he's—he's he's totally right. Like <laughs> this movie is terrible, and they just wasted a. The platform, the body of this beautiful Mercury, even though it wasn't the prettiest version of a Mercury, it has potential. You can always change stuff. Right. And now it's gone forever. That was like the first time that ever really kind of hit me. And I'm like, yeah, geez, Dad, you're right. That was a waste. Yeah, it, uh... I rewatched it again because I remember loving it as a kid. And I I rewatched it again for this. And it's just the excess... Well, I'll start here. I'm a huge Stallone fan because of Rocky. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot I can forgive because of Rocky. I still like Demolition Man and I still like Assassins. And okay, I'm not going to go down the shot stop or my mom will shoot or those kind of things or Judge Rhinestone. Dredd. Yeah, or Judge Dredd or any of that stuff. Can't, can't excuse those, but there are a few that I can. So I was thinking this is probably going to be one of those ones that I'll watch. And it might be bad, but I'll probably be like, eh, you know, it's no, it's really it's really really bad and it's the excess of that ego at the time mm-hmm. yeah he's riding high in this yeah. at this time period i mean of... this is coming after two of his biggest hits which was rambo 2 mm-hmm. and rocky 4 right huge 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 thing the guy could literally hand over a company the phone book and say i want to make this into a movie and they'd be like here's 20 million dollars go do what you want to do Right, and Schwarzenegger was still on the rise yet, you know. Right. He hadn't really challenged his... Because he kind of dethrones him, if you ask me. But yeah. Especially oh, by the 1990. Yeah. Uh, Stallone kind of falls out of fashion, and Schwarzenegger is the guy, you know. Right. And uh, so he... Yeah, his... You, you can just tell... And you were telling me that he kind of ghost-directed this movie. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the word is, is that... 
they brought in a guy named George P. Cosmatos, who apparently this happens to a lot because this is the same guy that they brought into Tombstone, and mm-hmm. then Kurt Russell ended up ghost directing that film. <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, Stallone apparently ghost directed Cobra, and you can kind of see it. You like, can see the it. Yeah, montage stuff is yeah. in there, and when they're searching for stuff, you can see he has this match that he keeps in in his mouth like a toothpick through most of the film, and you you know you, he doesn't yeah, smoke. It's, all the scenes are basically. Well, scenes of with Cobra are all shot in a way that make him look as badass and as brooding as possible. Right. And un, and unnecessary. Yeah, and at the time in the eighties, like gleam of all of the the eighties fashion and eighties over excessiveness and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I bet you anything. I remember loving the shit out of this film. So I bet you there were people who went to see this movie like, man, he's such a fucking badass. Yeah. Man. But when you watch it now, <laughs> all, all of his like one-liners are so flat and it's awful. But he like keeps his sunglasses on when he's in his own apartment and he's right. looking up stuff on his old Commodore sixty-four yeah, files right, and right, shit. Right. And for some reason, I still don't know why. There's a scene where he goes into his fridge before he goes over to his Commodore sixty-four. He brings out a pizza box and a pair of scissors and he cuts he uses the scissors to cut the pizza in half and <laughs> eat part of the pizza and i remember th- like watching it this time like what 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 why the fuck did that happen like that had to have been like this is what i'm gonna do all right yeah. so follow me with the camera you right. know and you're like i think there's oh, a man. lot of that in this movie like uh, yeah. oh there is yeah. it's terrible it's a terrible, terrible movie, and it's a vanity project. He was hooked up with Beverly Hills Cop. He was supposed that was right, his movie, right, right? And then he started changing the script, and Paramount was just like, "All these changes you made is going to make the budget go from twenty million dollars to thirty million dollars. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't want to spend that much on this property." So he gets pissed, leaves that project, goes because uh, Cannon's knocking down his door to offer him whatever he wants to do to sign a three-picture deal. So he finally takes up Cannon. After ignoring him for a while, goes and then makes his version of Beverly Hills Cop, which is Cobra. Right. After Rocky IV, he's hooking up with Brigitte Nielsen. They get right. married, and he puts her in at this movie as the right. uh, da- damsel in distress with a wig right. on to hide her goofy short haircut of the 80s. She has an even goofier wig on through the whole movie, just kind oh, of screaming man. and hooping and hollering. And yeah, 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 yeah. There's even a scene in there I noticed too, where the guy, the bad guy with the big knife, is kind of coming through the door, and she's screaming yeah. at the door. I'm like, this is stolen straight from The Shining. This is like yeah. right out of the whole "Here's Johnny" yeah. thing. And right. little, little she's in a hospital little... that's completely empty and no one's around. The lights are off. I'm like, well, this is Halloween too. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Until she hits the fire alarm, and then so, uh, suddenly, all of a sudden, there's a Everyone. thousand people in there. Yeah, there's cattle running by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And so it's the epitome of everything that someone is told that everything they do is amazing mm-hmm. putting their self out there on a script and it just being utter dog shit and mm-hmm. no one saying anything different and of course because he is at the height of his power right now mm-hmm. it comes out it does well enough that yeah. they were going to do a sequel but he moved on to other things but i can't tell you how rough it was re-watching that one it was mm. just ugh yeah, I only, again, kind of like for Invasion USA, I just kind of watched some clips and stuff like that. And just this, the zestless one-liners, again, I have to bring it back up. They're just so yeah. cheap and 
not well. They're not clever. They're yeah. They're stupid. Yeah. Ugh. No, it's it, you can tell it's 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 those things that when you when we're talking about Gollum and how he takes all these things from these movies and then thinks everything he's thinking of is brilliant and everything. You can see that happening in Stallone here too, because I mean, even the last final line is. This is where the law stops. And I start. It's funny because the same thing ends up happening to Schwarzenegger because by the time he gets to Batman and Robin, he's got right. his own little side team that helps him write the one-liner, the ice-related one-liners for that from Dr. Freeze or whatever. Right. And it's like, I wonder if they look back and say, you know, I basically turned into you 10 years later, you know? Yeah. I think... When they're filming Expendables 4. <laughs> right, right. I think, I think one of the things too is that because both him both stallone and schwarzenegger fall into a range of where they're very limited in what they can play and how they can play a character there's there's not a ton of range that they can go so you're immediately gonna get locked into a persona and Mm -hmm. you have to kind of stick to those beats if you want people to go see your shit because the minute you stray outside of that they're gonna be like what the fuck is he doing this for (laughs) i don't want to see him doing drama i want to see him killing people right well, I can just imagine, too, Sylvester Stallone, like, as Schwarzenegger starts stealing his thunder, just right. getting super diva pissed off, going, yo, what's up with you? You can barely understand what this guy's saying, <laughs> you know, right. in, in a way that you can barely understand. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. And, and feeling kind of, like, small-dicked by the fact that he's a short guy, even though he's right. muscular. Right, but this guy is Mr. Fucking Universe seven times over, right. and you know it just fucking sticks him up his crawl that Mr. Universe is like way the fuck bigger than him and stealing right. all of his thunder, you know? Right, and no, and, totally. and and Arnie Arnie's like got his big cigar, just kind of laughing at him, you know? Right, because yeah, and especially too because you know before acting and writing Rocky mm-hmm. Stallone had nothing he was penniless pretty yeah, much yeah right. i mean there are stories of him living on benches and shit and barely surviving and shit before schwarzenegger became an actor he was a millionaire from, yeah right from uh, real estate right yeah and yeah and i'm sure endorsements too with the, yeah from the from the mr universe stuff uh, like gold's gym kind of stuff right yeah so i mean the, the millions he made from hollywood and stuff was just icing on the cake to him yeah you know? right right but then years later, the only hits that Schwarzenegger gets is in Stallone movies. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I kind of, it's a sad old age thing, you know? Yeah, Try, yep. It's either that or, you know, let's do another Terminator movie. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Anywho, right. we probably bashed on that long enough. Yeah, it's a piece of shit. I agree. Before we go, do, do you think there's any essence of canon in this movie, or is it all the Stallone's ego? Here's the thing. I think that they're pretty much aligned Yeah. <laughs> by yeah. the time this thing comes out. Right. Because they're both so out-of-their-head ego-driven, mm-hmm. and, and what they think is is a great idea is the best idea on the table. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I don't know if it's distinguishable. <laughs> right. So yes, very much so, and I think it's also very much Stallone. Well, let's go to the next uh, Stallone disaster piece. <laughs> uh, uh, from at, at least it's a year later in 1987, and that's the grandiose, over-the-top, 
over-the-top movie. <laughs> I think that if fathers were given a second chance to do things over again, they may approach child-rearing a whole different way. So that's what I, I always gear it towards that. I said, boy, this is great. He gets a second chance to go back and reclaim his lost years with the child. This is his, that's the whole purpose for the movie. The arm wrestling is just the ends to a mean, you know, it means to an end, I'm sorry. But the child, the God, he said, oh, if I could just do it one more time. And we all say that. Now, this is what this film is all about. So it has a little bit of magic to it. Take it We've got <laughs> the best boxing movie guy ever. Right. How do we grab a hold of that? He can't be a boxer. No, he, he's already done boxing. So what else yeah. could he do? I don't know why he can't be a wrestler. <laughs> Because Mickey Rourke has got that waiting for him years well, later. Years, years later, later, right, yeah. <laughs> so we'll make him an arm wrestler. Right. No sense at all. No, <laughs> that makes no sense at all. I rewatched this one again and again because this was another one. I can't say that I loved it as a kid, but I watched the fuck out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you it's had that as a kid. one of those snap half movies yeah. like that, but yeah. Yeah. So I rewatched it again for this. And it's not as bad as Cobra. <laughs> right. And I think this is because Menahem Gollum actually directed this movie. Right. So this was a passion project of his. So now you've got one ego fighting another. Mm -hmm. And apparently Stallone was very upset with the film because he wanted a more darker tone to it. And he wanted it a little bit more ominous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back rooms where the arm wrestling is instead of, it's a big tournament, and, right, you know, right. and all of this stuff. And I'll give Canon sole credit for this thing, and that is they turned this thing into a real tournament mm -hmm. just to get publicity going. For the to, movie ahead of When the movie came out, yeah. it was a real thing that people could get behind. <laughs> right. They actually then, made an arm wrestling tournament. They funded an arm wrestling tournament. And not just in the States, they did it in Israel, and they did all around the world they did this. Well, we also need to talk a little bit about Stallone's uh, contract for the three movies, because at the time, it was he was the highest paid actor, right? Yep. Yeah. This deal from Canon made him the highest paid actor. He got $12 million a film, per yeah. film, three yeah. films. Right. That's insane. So, I mean, and he's even, like, uh, just a few years ago, he did an interview with some movie website. And, mm -hmm. of course, these movies come up because they're just like, why'd you do that? And he's just like, and he's very honest about it now. He's just like, you know, they were, sh they were throwing a shitload of money at me, and I kept turning them down. And when I'd turn them down, they'd make it higher. <laughs> and he's like, eventually, I was just like, who cares if anyone sees it? I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. So, the, definitely, the passion is there for this uh, in this movie. So you have you have Robert Loja playing the grandfather that doesn't want his grandson to go with Stallone in this film because Stallone's a trucker too. Mm -hmm. and he has this device in his truck that's built into the cab of the truck where it's like weights and he's using it to build his arm up. Yeah, arm for wrestles. arm wrestling. <laughs> it's just so much. Oh, I had a lot more fun watching this than I did as Cobra a rewatch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's silly, but at least it's like there you can kind of get into the rhythm of the silliness of it at and least. And there's isn't there something about they filmed a documentary within the movie and then those clips ended up in the movie? Right. So the, you know, Cannon started this whole arm wrestling tournament thing. It turned into a big deal, a really mm -hmm. big deal. So then the Cannon and this is another 
ingenious thing I think that they did is they then they took the success of that they went and did a documentary and then they sent Stallone in and then Stallone did a few things with people you know arm wrestling guys and basically Stallone was in there uh, saying you know because one of the main guys that Stallone ends up arm wrestling in the film is this gigantic motherfucker Mm -hmm. and Stallone was just like we can't have this guy do it because he dwarfs me Mm -hmm. no one is ever gonna believe it but then the guy who ended up really beating that guy in the arm wrestling tournament is smaller than Stallone. Right, and that right. guy is basically saying it's not about being jacked and muscly and everything. It's, it's about, about stance yeah. and leverage. Yeah. yeah. And so then that's what convinced Stallone. Okay, well we can do this guy and whatever. And and so yeah, they they get this tournament started. They send in cameras. They do documentary footage and everything. And then they incorporate this into the movie. So and the part of the movie at the end when he's going to Las Vegas and there's this big arm wrestling tournament thing, there's all of this documentary footage of all these people talking about. Yeah, I got in there and I just I got to zone out, you know, and doing all this stuff. <laughs> right. And it's you're like, is this the same movie? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it turns into this thing. And then of course Stallone's like playing in character, playing to the uh, documentary part of it. And then that part in the film is really not so bad. To tell you the truth, the truck is uh, the, the most important thing for me. I I don't really, it doesn't matter if I uh, become the champion or anything. That's, that's not the most important. I I need this truck. Lincoln Hawk from the Truckers Division. You can kind of see he's actually thinking in character and stuff, but it's just a, it's a silly premise. Mm-hmm. And the arm wrestling thing, it just gets really, you know, he goes, he, he's trying to get to know his son and it, it, that whole side story with the son and everything is just wonky and the mother's dying and he wants to get to know the kid and everything. But like he picks the kid up and it, and <laughs> they stop at this diner and then everyone knows who Hawk is and right, he's still yeah. alone. And they're all like, there's a back room to this truck stop, and they're all like, "Come on, let's go, let's let's do it," you know. And there's an arm wrestling bench back there, and everything, and you're just like, "What? What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's just yeah, yeah with the kid, right? I remember clips from that. Yeah, alone. Like... Apparently, didn't rewrite a whole lot of this script it was just one that Gollum really wanted to do and wanted to put him in and so stallone did it and everything and so this one definitely feels like more canon than stallone right then yeah the cobra <laughs> does right yeah out of all of these ones that i rewatched for this show that was probably the one i had the most fun with well okay you can kind of get in the rhythm of it a bit so do you think he um was simply in this one for the money because the idea is so ridiculous Stallone, yeah, for sure. You can, you know, I mean, he's even come out, like I said, in, in, in later later on in interviews and just said, you know, if I would have done that movie, I would have rewrote it and I would have made it a little darker. I would have done this. I would have mm-hmm. done that with it. And he's like, and he's like, there, and there literally is, there's poppy rock 80s songs, mm-hmm. like every fucking five minutes in this movie. Yeah. I Well, I'm, I'm sure Golan was probably doing his thing where he's like, all right, let's copy Rocky three and Rocky four. You right. know, as far as because because the, there's a lot of really bad rock music in those too. Yeah, yeah. But the, the 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 thing that Stallone was saying when he was saying that he's, he's like the first thing I would have done was he's just like you know got rid of a lot of that rock stuff. He's just like because when you use it sparingly, it's he's okay. But the movie needed heart. He's like if you wanted to get to people and attach them to the characters and stuff, you got to use score. You got to use score music, and so you you attach them through score and stuff like that. So you know he was going on and criticizing for that. The movie has way more things, but definitely yeah, it's a paycheck movie for sure. You know mm-hmm. I don't. You know, there's there's no way I don't think he would have done it without twelve million dollars in his face. <laughs> <laughs>
ask you something. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking when you made over the top? What? Over the top? I mean, you had to arm wrestle a guy for the custody of your son, for God's sake. Save your energy. I mean, did you actually get that script and go around telling people, hey, this is a good one? Oh, come on, just drop it, please. No, no, you're right, you know. It was an excellent movie, now that I think about it. After all, you know, it does combine the emotional drama of a, of a custody child hearing with uh, arm wrestling. That's enough! Whoa, hey, hey, remember that movie Kramer versus yes. Kramer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was about child custody, too. Yeah, yeah but it, it wasn't that good. It was, I don't know, it was missing something, you know. I, yeah, what was it missing? I can't, oh, wait, I know, arm wrestling. Shut up! All right, well, let's talk about paycheck movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the same year as 1987. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's going to be near the theoretically nearest and dearest to old Derek's heart here. Oh, man. Yes, it is. Because uh, it's, uh, we're talking about Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Yes. Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, the owners of Canon Films, produced and financed Street Smart on the condition that I play Superman in at least one more sequel. As we were filming in Montreal, writers Larry Connor and Mark Rosenthal were busy churning out the script for Superman 4. The premise this time, based largely on input from me, I'm sorry to say, was that Superman would intervene in the nuclear arms race. Golan and Globus had spent no money on advertising and promoting Street Smart, so it quickly vanished despite excellent reviews. Superman 4 was simply a catastrophe from start to finish. This is where I'll go uh, again on the ingenuity of what Canon was doing. I don't think that they knew what they were doing at the time, <laughs> right. but Canon was doing something really smart where they were taking properties that were no longer in fashion and they were buying up as fucking much as they could. Ooh, Spider-Man? Yeah, give me that. Ooh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Captain America? Give me that. Superman? Yeah, give me that. Mm-hmm. And so they were going through and they were buying all this shit because they wanted to be able to pitch anything that they, they could possibly get their hands on and have in there because they knew that franchise was a way to continue success. People yeah. want more of this. So that, you know, Missing in Action 3 and mm. Death Wish 9 and all this shit. So that way they were way ahead of the curve. Yeah. The problem was <laughs> that they didn't want to invest what it took to make these movies look decent. Right. And so by the time Superman 3 comes out, Chris Reeve was done with it because it got goofy and he said, I didn't want to do it again. And plus I was getting older and he's like, the belt was getting a lot tighter and everything was fitting, you know? So he said, I didn't want to do it. But when Canon came to the, him, he had always had this script. And this is actually every now and again, Canon would be involved with a movie that was actually pretty decent. And Chris Reeve did a movie with Morgan Freeman back in the day. I think it was in 87 called street smart. And it was about a reporter who goes out and interviews pimps and gets involved in the lifestyle and it turns into this real seedy kind of movie and stuff like that and the only way that it, he could get them to make it is they like we have the rights to superman now and we want you to do another superman movie so his stipulation was well i want to be able to write the script you know i want to be able to shoot it where we we shot before in new york and make everything good and they were like yeah no problem so they looked at it he wrote the script he turned it in they said okay we're going to give you like $30 million to do it. And he was like, great. And they, I think they said they were somewhere around a week or two from production and they slashed mm. the budget from $30 million to like $12 million. <laughs> yeah, that's big. And so the movie shows. It yeah. looks awful. Right. So one, it looks awful. 
And two, it's just not a good story. No. It's not a good story. And what they're doing is I they're trying to go back. Because wasn't Christopher Reeve like, I want to be able to talk about how I feel about nu- nuclear weapons. Right. And and that was what got put into the story and all this stuff. But right. I don't, I'm pretty sure he did not write the part of nuclear man. No. So all of that, basically Chris Reeve was, by the time they got to the third one, he was like, it's getting goofy. And he's like, we have all of this history in the comic books to draw from. Mm -hmm. So let's grab one of those villains that are from the comics and put it in there. So it was supposed to be a mixture of uh, Lex Luthor and Brainiac from the comic book, which is a great villain in the comics. And then as he was going against nuclear weapons was a distraction for Brainiac to come in and then there was a big plot there. By the time that happened and the budget was slashed, it was just like, well, we, we can't do this Brainiac the way we were doing it. So, you know, and then all of a sudden something was pitched by someone and they had to stick to it because he was contractually obligated to do it now. Mm-hmm. And Nuclear Man comes into play. Oh, God. <laughs> Played by a Chippendales dancer. Right, right. And it shows. Yeah. And boy, is he a good actor. He, all he does Ooh. through most of the thing is just scream. And when he talks, they, they dub his voice with Gene Hackman. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Destroy Superman. Later. He's a little bit anxious. Can you blame him? Wow. Because his delivery was so bad, and I said, well, technically it would make sense because Gene Hackman created, created him. him so, yeah. yeah. I don't even that understand was, how they got Gene Hackman back. I think that was before the budget was cut. Oh, so Gene okay. Hackman got a good, a good hefty pay. Chris got paid what they promised him, and Gene got paid what it was. But by the time they started getting in, because none of the effects were taking place yet. So mm-hmm. the minute they got into that... Then they slashed the budget. They had two weeks, and they're like, well, we got to rewrite the script to match what the budget we have. I'm sure that was the plan all along, was to just hook these guys in with the idea of a big budget without ever planning on following through on... Yep. And say, we'll just do the old bait and switch once they sign on the contract. Yep. They end up doing the same thing the very next year with Masters of the Universe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so um, Ned Beatty's not involved, you know, but they replace him with uh, uh, Ducky himself, John Cryer. Another thing that you can see canon DNA in this thing by right. them saying, what will make the kids really love this side character? Because no one's going to know who this Gene Hackman guy is. <laughs> exactly, right. This old. So they put in John Cryer, who's, you know, hot, hot, part of the Brat Pack, so. Right. And he's annoying and obnoxious and makes really, he's, he's also the, the, like Ned Beatty, he's supposed to be a lot of the, the comic, uh, relief. Comic and, relief. And, and how do you do that? You make him like a surfer guy. Yeah. Whoa, dude. Whoa. Yeah. The only things I can say that I, I, I mean, you and I talked about something that's pretty funny that I do want to get to, but the only thing I will say, I have an affinity for all the Superman movies, no matter how bad they get, because it's one of my favorite characters and I saw him as a kid and I have nostalgia attached to him. And what few scenes that there are in the movie that I can still say reminds me of a Superman movie is everything with Clark. All yeah, of his Clark right, stuff, right. Feel like they have a scene where he's on the farm and he's mm. thinking about selling the old Kent farm and stuff. And all of that felt really like, a, I mean, man, this is this feels like a Superman movie here. Mm-hmm. It's all the goofy shit that happens all around it and how bad the effects are. And Superman all of a sudden has a power that can put walls back together that's been... Yeah, <laughs> right, with the Great it's, Wall of China, yeah. It's like, what? Yeah, that, yeah. Well, that, there's that 
typical like the sitcom thing where he's got to be Clark and Superman yeah. at the same time because he's double dating them, and it's, it right. reminds me of a Family Ties episode or something right, like that. Right, you right. know, every every right. 80s sitcom did that episode where oh right. shit, I date, I have a date with two girls in one night, and I'm gonna jump back and forth. Right. And I remember I was watching that because I just only saw this for the first time about a week ago, right, <laughs> you know, right. in preparation for this episode. And right, it, it is a campy kind of fun way, but it's right. it, it's probably of of the ones I was uh, reviewing for this. This is one of the ones that goes down a little easier because you just kind of go into it knowing it's going to be a fucking right. train wreck, and it's not yep. so bad that you can't laugh at it. You know what I mean? Right. And plus, you know, you get to you get to see at the beginning he saves space people with space helmets on, and at the yeah. end, Mar- Mariel Hemingway is floating in space and perfectly fine. Yeah, it's bananas. <laughs> She's fucking beyond the atmosphere in space, breathing fine, not freezing to death. And, right. And, uh, yeah. Just, just hanging on to nuclear, man. <laughs> Meanwhile, Superman fucks up everything by moving the moon in front of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> That won't cause any kind of lunar issues. Right, right. Yeah, the tidal problems. There'll probably be like <laughs> tsunamis all over the world now. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of those movies that I'm not saying it could have been great, but I think it could have been better than what it was. It was a dead the, horse by the time. Yeah. And I think Christopher Reeve was right. His, he was a little past his prime. And, you know, especially when you, <laughs> you compare the Chippendales guy who's buff and just right. cut like a motherfucker you know right probably looks really good in his uh collars and tie right but uh and and then you know you got christopher reeve in his blue spandex and kind of little you know sucking in his gut a little bit yep and, oh man one it shouldn't have been made no. but two it shouldn't have been made like this <laughs> right 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 it was just an unfortunate thing again i saw this in the theater Mm-hmm. And at the time I was a kid, so I loved the fuck out of it because it was another Superman adventure. It's only like as years gone by and you go back and you revisit the shit that you like and you're just like, oh man, this is, I can see wires there and I can see, <laughs> why doesn't this look as good as those other ones? And then as you, you, you go on and you realize, oh, canon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and watching a lot of special effects videos where they're kind of critiquing stuff. Right. One of the things I I, I don't remember I haven't seen the, the original two in a long time but so this is one of the more recent ones that I watched with the flying scenes and he's flying the lighting is totally off because it when he's when he's hanging on the wires and there's even a scene where he's flying Lois around again for no reason whatsoever uh, in this movie yeah in, in Superman four, four for, yeah. Superman four and and you can tell how they're lighting them for the screen is from below. Right. But he's flying in the sky where the sun is above them and the shadow is on the top of their head and not on the bottom and and then you're like, "Oh my god, did, did not anybody just not the, That's not a budget problem, that's an idiocy problem. All right. you have to do is just move the light to the top. <laughs> it's that fucking simple. That's Manahem going, fuck it, just move on. <laughs> yeah, but, right. <laughs> well, and so, a lot of the flying scenes, they just reuse the same five shots yeah, over and over again. Yeah, they don't have the money to do anything else. Right, right. right. <laughs> There's a whole fight on the moon that was never supposed to happen, and a fight in space, and this whole weird thing with Statue of Liberty that was never supposed to be in it, and it was just, it was one of those things that was just like, okay, well, if we can't do this big thing, what can we do to substitute it? And then they go for something else that's not as good, but still, we should have the budget for that, and then they don't even have the budget for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Look, Chris is the star of the movie. He should act in the movie. He can work on the script with the writer. I did everything they wanted. I sent the writer to New York. I, I did everything they wanted. He said, if you don't have another million and a half to do this movie in New York, how do I know that you have 30 million to do Superman? I mean, the way to talk to me like that, where do you take the money, he said. I said, from the bank, Chris, from the bank. So do you think, um, I mean, obviously we talked a little bit about, in some ways they were ahead of their time, but right. that didn't really give them the advantage they needed because they're lacking talent, don't you think? It's def it's that thing that we, we started off the show with, was that there's a ton of passion, but the talent's just not there. You know? Right. And, and it, as the more successful they came, even with their strategy of low budgets for a lot of films, that made them really popular in a big company and, and, and prominent, not as huge as all the other big ones, but they wanted to be that. But they got up there pretty high. Yeah. Higher than I think most people would have made it. And right. I think that what happened is you can you can kind of see Roger Corman seeing, oh, wow, they're doing good like me. Oh, they're going too far. Stop, wait, come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and I guess, you know, one of their other really big names that they had going for them was uh, Van Damme. They basically, Van Damme begged them to be, right. to discover him. Right. You know. He's in Break Him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is he really? Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the background dancer guys. That's embarrassing. Yeah. But yeah, I think he had to kind of like jump in front of him and do the splits and mm -hmm. all this stuff and do a flying kick just to show him how, how good he was. Right, and then right. He, and Gollum yeah. was like, you're going to be a star. Yeah, right, right. And so, yeah, you know, years you know years come on and we get like, you know, Kickboxer and Cyborg and all of those movies. And even that ended, I guess. Yeah, and Bloodsport and, and Cyborg was even one that they had already used some money to start setting up the sequel for Masters of the Universe because it was supposed to be this huge hit. Right. And a lot of the sets that they had ready to go because Ma Masters of the Universe came out and bombed. Yeah. They were like, well, what are we going to do with this? And he's just like, use it for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. so all of the sets you see in that is really from Masters of the Universe too. It's just, it's one of those things again that, but yeah. You know, it's exactly like a, a huge budget company of Ed Wood Productions. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, and I remember, like, after seeing Bloodsport, finding out that Cyborg existed <laughs> and thinking, oh, wow. Fuck. You know, you <laughs> got right. the guy from Bloodsport mm -hmm. and Terminator shit. Wow. This is going to be the best movie I've ever seen in my life. How could you lose? And then I watch it and it's sleepy, boring. <laughs> the cyborg <laughs> is not even an action character. Right. It's a girl that has information in her cybernetic head that needs to get brought to something mm -hmm. for some reason. And, and Jean-Claude is protecting her right but she's a fucking robot you know what i mean i'm mm -hmm. like so they totally missed the mark on that movie it's terminator but in reverse yeah it's literally <laughs> in reverse that's what it is yeah you're right and uh, yeah i remember being really bummed out about it right, yeah yeah right i i was never on the van damme wagon i liked a few of his films here and there but i was never like in his corner i i, I was i was because wow. i i was right and the whole steven seagal van damme right. thing into the 90s right i was definitely if i mean if i had to put one or the other if i had to elvis and beetle this shit i would mm -hmm. definitely probably more seagal than 
than Van Damme. I, I saw way more Seagal movies than I did Van Damme because his was so much easier to pronounce. It was always three words, hard to kill, out for justice. <laughs> then we've seen Bobby Lupo. <laughs> Marked for death. Marked for death, yeah. Right. But yeah, those aren't canon movies, surprisingly. No, much. I know. You, you wouldn't know it. <laughs> but, uh... So... Since we're at the end of the list that we picked for this, let me ask you this, Tim. Mm-hmm. Does the do you think the cultural difference from Gullen and Globus play a big part in their success and or failure? I, I don't think the success has anything to do with it. <laughs> okay. I think it's all the reason why they fail because they are foreign born, foreign raised. They're pretty much almost middle aged men by the time they start this. Mm-hmm. So they're set in their Israeli ways, you know what I mean? As far as culture goes, they can't relate to us in the way they think they can relate to us. Completely different culture, completely different. I mean, obviously they relate in some ways because some of these movies do stick to, I think, maybe a 10% of the population. (laughs) Right, yeah. I just feel like... And it's not, it has nothing to do with where they're from. They could be from uh, Brazil or China or, uh, you know, there's language, there's a language barrier. And I think anytime when when somebody comes from a, a different language and they're trying to make movies here, I feel like with England and Australia and New Zealand, which are all, and, and America and Canada, all these English speaking countries, they can interswap a little bit just because the language is common. And, and I think there's so much culture in, in, in the expression of language that gets lost when you're coming from another language. Cause like you even think of some French stuff and stuff like that, what they find funny and the way right. they play with words is completely different because the language structure is so different, you know, because our language is this bastard version of romantic and Germanic languages right right? and so what plays as funny in say spanish or or french you know these more romantic or italian these romantic language places and the culture that's built up behind those languages it doesn't always mesh mesh right and i think that's why these guys fail they just think bigger louder i just think that's their answer to the cultural divide is more 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 and and they're doing it with low quality the more they're doing more with less money and it shows and it's not connecting the dots then somehow (laughs) Mm -hmm. especially in the 80s it makes some kind of weird connection Mm -hmm. that ends up affecting moviegoers as they get older Mm -hmm. like we remember it and it's like so ingrained in the culture of our youth that it's kind of like you can't imagine it without that there right it's just weird it's weird how that happens yeah the goofiness of it i think is probably what you know like what everyone else wasn't doing when you have people like clint eastwood out there doing like dirty hairy movies and you know and even taking how straightforward and revenge thriller the original death wish was and how goofy they get from two on when Gollum and globus take over them right it shows the difference in perspective of what they enjoy from films or what they think that people enjoy from the other ones you know yeah and here's the other thing too that i feel like they're not valuing enough and that's writing Right. Dialogue is clunky. Storyline flow is terrible. The the even and the concepts, even if they're co- copying something else, 
the concepts are just flat, 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 and and uh, it doesn't matter. They could have had the biggest fucking budget in the world, and it wouldn't matter, right? It, because the heart of any story is the the writing, and right. it does. It just seems like, the, you know, they're investing money in big faces like Stallone and building Chuck Norris and 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 these and whoever else that you know uh, they kind of creating Van Damme into this guy. You know what I mean? But right. They never invest any money in writers, so that's where they fall apart. That's that's why they fail. That and the c- cultural divide thing. Right. It definitely seems like when they think that there's a problem with the movie, it's not, hey, let's hone the script a little better. It's like, hey, let's just throw stuff at it and <laughs> right, distract right. from how right. much sense this doesn't make. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I think that's the key right there. That's exactly right. So I think... Uh, We've kind of said our piece. I'll give you an amen, brother. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, because we hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so if we mentioned anything in this conversation, any movies that you like or dislike or maybe are on the fence about, then we want to hear back from you. Post on our Twitter or any of our social media pages. We do thank you, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, hit the uh, goddamn button to end the goddamn transmission. How does that goddamn sound? Well, that's a lot of vulgarity. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> goddamn you. Throw some V8 on those tits and some ninjas in there we got a flick yeah ninja tits (laughs) goddamn hell yeah (laughs) all right i'm out (laughs) 